0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is a transitional passage. Uh, Verse 23 is really the summary and the culmination of the, the previous several chapters. That has been explaining the bad news, our desperate condition, that all are unrighteous. No, not one is righteous. That all are that all uh, deserve the wrath of God. That the law silences everybody before God, and that we all are in the same predicament—a predicament of condemnation and wrath and the pending, uh, the pending judgment of God. And then we have this very subtle yet dramatic transition that happens in verse 24, where he begins a new section, and this is the good news section. And as this section is began, Paul starts this section with one of the most dense and heavy-hitting uh, passages of regarding the gospel that we find anywhere in Scripture. And it seems like he wants to just overwhelm his readers and overwhelm us with the magnificence of the gospel and to cause us to step back, to stun us really as he begins to lay forward the good news. However, he uses some terminology and some concepts that as I read this with people, I just get mainly blank stares and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Some of the most magnificent concepts in the entire Bible, and yet often we do not know them well enough for them to have the impact that Paul has intended for them to have. These concepts, justification and redemption, fit into a larger category, which I lump together and they're not all metaphors, but for the sake of this series we're going to call them all metaphors. And a metaphor is a term or a concept used to describe something else, something bigger, uh, something that we would be familiar with. And so really these concepts are metaphors for this larger uh, concept of what it means to be united to Christ, to be in Christ, to have the work of Christ done in us so that we're united to Christ. And yet he uses these little concepts uh, to help us be drawn into that understanding. They are indeed metaphors. A metaphor is the smallest story we find in the Bible. So we have this meta narrative that starts at the beginning and goes all the way to the end of the redemptive work of Christ. And then within that, we have smaller sagas of Israel. And within that, smaller stories maybe of David. And with that, smaller stories yet of different components of David's life. And we have parables that are even smaller yet. And then we have these little micro stories which we would call metaphors. Last time, I talked about the metaphor rock. I said, isn't it interesting? We have this concept of a rock that's used to describe the most indescribable entity in the entire universe, God. So we have this concept, rock, and somehow from that, I'm supposed to understand characteristics and qualities of this indescribable uh, entity, God himself. Yeah, we have this metaphor, and it's to be useful to us. We learn certain things about God, as we consider this rock. And today, we have this same situation. We have a metaphor, justification or justified. And my intent today is to open the door and to step into this metaphor and explore it a little bit. A metaphor could be likened to a, uh, a poster for a movie. If you're walking downtown and you walk by the theater... There's a poster on the outside, and it's supposed to capture your attention, and it tells you a few interesting details about the movie, the characters, and there's usually a scene that would draw you into it, and it stops you, and you go, wow, that's really interesting. But you don't know what the movie's about. You haven't experienced it. Well, there might even be a movie trailer. You go home and watch, or watch on your phone, a trailer of the movie, and you get a a little larger sense. You experience some of the drama and some of the, the twists and turns of the movie, but it's just the trailer. But if you open the door and you go in to the theater and you sit and you encounter the movie in the entirety of the plot and all the character development and all the, all the, uh, the heroes and the, the, all the, the crisis that are over, overcome and the music, you're like, wow, that moved me. I have experienced what the, what the creators of that intended me to experience. And metaphors are like the poster on the wall. If we don't, if we haven't gone in and sat and experienced the movie, the poster only tells us a tiny fragment of what we really should understand about this concept. And so, we are going to open the door and move into this metaphor of justification. Now, these terms do have definitions. And definitions and are helpful. And Pastor Brian, in preparation for this, I went back and listened to three Sunday School messages Pastor Brian did uh, uh, entitled, Our Great Salvation, and he taught three Sunday School classes on justification. And they were filled with wonderful uh, explanations of justification and and really filled in this beautiful concept. And it was a tremendous blessing to me. And we uh, we can come up with good definitions of justification. One of those might be a legal declaration by God that you are acquitted of your guilt and gain a righteous standing necessary to be reconciled to God by obtaining Christ's righteousness. Or by grace alone, through faith alone, guilty sinners are justified as their sin is credited to Jesus and he pays the just penalty for that for this, that sin as the sinless sacrifice and credits you with the righteousness of Jesus, whereby receiving a merciful acquittal based on his righteousness. I am not very bright. And it doesn't take but about two seconds for a definition to leave my mind. It travels through and it kind of connects and then it's, it disappears. I have trouble recalling those things. It's interesting, the Bible was not written like an encyclopedia, just filled with definitions. And that would have been enough, right? God could have just given us that and just defined his character and his nature and what we should do and not do and, and the gospel and the work of Christ. It could, but he didn't do that. It's a it's a narrative. It's a story. It's a story within a story within a story within a story. And the more you understand the story, the more complex it gets, the more you're amazed. Like every facet, nuance of the story is, is unfailed for us because it is in these stories where we are gripped where we experience them. And I find the same to be true with these concepts. So I am going to take a very little bit of liberty. You're going to have to use your sanctified imagination. And I know both pastors sitting here this afternoon have their weapons with them. So they are going to be very little <laughs> liberty. But it is important that we think through these. Metaphors understood from a first-person vantage becomes powerful. It becomes part of my story. And if I was to ask you, tell me your story. Tell me about your your life, where you grew up, and your family. and, and," And I ask this of everybody that I meet with. And I usually get a very similar story about life and childhood and education and careers and spouses and all kinds of things. When they're done, I say... Would you mind going back and winding your spiritual journey through that story? I know it has to connect somewhere. And if we think of our story, and there's not this one very dramatic sector of our story that says, that is when I was justified. Let me tell you about what happened to me at this point in my life. Then we've missed some of the power of this particular metaphor, and this whole understanding of, of justification so let me take you into this metaphor the summons had been coming for a long time God had prepared you for the day for this day his spirit had been working in you although you didn't know it creation made you consider the Creator and you stood at times marveling at the vastness of the creation and the intricacy of the things you found around yourself, the way we work and function, and you were overwhelmed at times, and you began asking, there must be, there must be a crater. This couldn't have all come from nowhere. And then your conscience at times was afflicted. You would do things or experience things, and you say, this is wrong. There's something going on here that it just doesn't seem right as your conscience was encountering your life. And then there were pieces of the law that you experienced that began more clearly pointing out to you uh, that you, uh, that you were not living the way you should be living. And you were afflicted by that at times. So the Spirit had been doing this work in you, but it was subtle and you were unaware. But then one day the Spirit came to you and said, Today is the day of reckoning. The king has summoned you to appear before his righteous throne. You were brought by the Spirit to the highest court in the land, and the king himself would be presiding over your case. It was the day of reckoning for you. You immediately began considering your life, knowing that you were going to have to enter into this court before the king. And while there was some concern, you had an inner attorney that was hard at work justifying uh, trying to explain away much of your much of the things you've done, things that you've been provoked to, things that you had experienced, and your inner attorney was reminding you that you did many good things and you'd been a good citizen, a good son or daughter, and that while you've had some missteps along the way, you were overly a good person, so you had very little to worry about as you were going to face the king. Besides, you had a few things you wanted to bring up to the king yourself. Like this so-called good king or good God has allowed you to suffer in ways that obviously are unfair. And so you were looking forward to this conversation where you might be able to bring up some of your own things against him. As you approached the courtroom, you were anxious but optimistic that any judge with a, the any capability would see your situation for what it was and rule in your favor. Things began to change a little when you entered the courtroom, and you realized that it was not an empty courtroom, but it was full. You were not alone. Actually, it was filled with people that you uh, encountered in your life, from childhood through your current situation. The room was filled with people that mattered to you, Uh, family, teachers teammates, people you'd worked with. Anybody that was important to you was sitting in this room, in the gallery, observing this trial. You had not thought of bringing a defense attorney, of course, because why would you need one? You were confident in your standing, but as you you were brought up towards the front of the courtroom and shown where to sat in the defendant's table, there was someone sitting there already. And he stood up, And he said, I have been assigned your case and will assist with your defense, which was confusing to you. You'd never met this person. How could they possibly defend you? And really, if you were honest, you had very little to defend against. As you took your seat, you looked across the aisle, and that's when things began to change. A heaviness set into your soul as you recognized the opposing counsel. There in the prosecution chair sat one you were vaguely aware of. You had heard his voice and had been influenced by him at times, but you knew he was powerful. There sat the tempter, the father of lies, the great deceiver. You sat in the defendant's chair and began to feel the man's guilt concerning your situation, knowing that he had information against you the bailiff called the courtroom to stand as the king entered and the glory of the king shone in the radiance of his majesty and holiness you could not believe what just entered the courtroom the splendid beauty and majesty of the king entered and your only response at that point was to fall on your face before him You're overwhelmed. The bailiff told those in attendance to be seated, but the king summoned you to stand. In your heart, there was a shift that happened. It seemed as if the trial was already coming to an end. In the presence of this king, this judge, you knew that you were in trouble. Being in the presence of the king, is holiness, his righteousness so exposed, your we, your wickedness and your unrighteousness, that you knew you were doomed. You were, sure, you were sure of your pending condemnation. There was no defense at this point. The only thing that permeated your mind was hopelessness. And then the trial began. The judge asked the accuser if he had an opening statement. He rose and began, Judge, you know this one is mine. He comes from the family of Adam. He has demonstrated allegiance to me as he quietly lived in opposition to you for his own glory. We will only need to open the book of the law to demonstrate his guilt before the court. It will be clear. This one is mine. The judge then asked the defense, If he had an opening statement. And my mind screamed, Yes, of of course he's got an opening statement. I am desperate for a defender. But he rose and said, Your Honor, we have no opening statement. What? What? How could this be? No statement? Are you kidding me? Nothing about my love for the King or my good life? Nothing about all the things I've done in my life? "'How could this be?' I raged. "'The judge said, "'Very well, let the the law be read.' "'As the book of the law was opened, "'the room became silent. "'Silent enough that when the monitors "'surrounding the gallery popped on, "'they grabbed the attention of everybody there. "'And my mind raced. "'What could they be for?' "'As the law began to be read, "'the monitors flickered with the first scene.' There above the spectators, those I knew, those that I loved, those that loved me, the actual events of every transgression showed in living color. All of my failures, all of my faults, all of my depravity, wickedness were shown in the actual events of the time. There was no hiding, no denying. All of the ideas and situations you had used to justify the acts, were stripped away, and what was left was sin. Oh, the shame you felt, the burden you felt, as you were exposed for who you actually were. Were you really that bad? That wicked? That selfish? It was undeniable as the law was read and the events were shown. As the charges were being established, you could tell that the judge knew perfectly. He did not need the trial for his knowledge of the sin was perfect. The trial was for you. At each new charge, the accuser sneered. He had great satisfaction in the events. As the accounts were read and the law was on display, he was delighted as the evidence was laid out. And it was overwhelming. Uh, you would receive the sentence of death. and You were desperate and hopeless. As the righteousness of the law was examined, you were found guilty at every point. You knew the depth of wretchedness that you had never known before. You were a criminal, and the only conclusion to this trial would be your condemnation. You would often glance at the man assigned to be your advocate, but he remained silent. And provided no defense on your behalf. It really didn't matter because you knew it was pointless. You knew you were guilty. You were convinced of it. As the law was finished, being read, and the charges established, the judge asked if I had anything I wanted to say. All my strength was gone. I had nothing to say. And I nodded, No, Your Honor. For my mouth had been stopped, and I knew that I was accountable before this judge. The judge then asked for closing arguments. The accuser rose and eagerly claimed, with great certainty, that the evidence was so overwhelmingly clear that the only one outcome that could ever be considered was guilt and condemnation. He was confident. Everyone in the courtroom agreed. You agreed. I agreed. The defense attorney agreed. The judge agreed. The judge asked if the defense counsel had a closing statement. And you thought, what use is it? What, what could possibly be said at this point? But the defender stood up. And he said, if it pleases the court, the defendant is guilty. He deserves to be punished to the fullest extent of the law. But, Judge, this is the one we love. He is the one we have committed to acquit today. I am ready to fulfill our agreement for his release. What could be going on, you thought? What what does this mean? I don't understand. Your mind is racing. The accuser is confused. The gallery is shocked. What could be happening? the judge spoke to the defense attorney. Come before the bench. What do you offer the court today? And the defender began, King, as we have agreed, I bring before you myself. I have a righteous record and have faithfully fulfilled the entirety of the law for this one purpose. I offer my record of righteousness on behalf of the accused. I also offer my life as a ransom for his. I am asking that his record of debt be counted as mine and my righteousness be counted as his. I am asking to receive the full weight of the law and the punishment he deserves. Judge, I am asking to purchase his freedom today. It was all said so fast that it was confusing. You didn't really understand what was even going on. What do you mean they love me? After my record of unrighteousness was read, it is clear I was an enemy. It was clear I was unrighteous. How could they love me? You are brought back to reality as you hear the accuser yell, I object, judge! I object! This is not justice. This cannot be. This is not fair. This man is guilty. He is mine and must be condemned today. The justice must be satisfied. And the judge commands, Silence! You have no authority in this courtroom. The judge then turns back to the defender and looks at him with compassion, saying, You are prepared for this day. You have prepared yourself as the fitting righteous substitute. Before the court, your offering will be accepted as suitable payment for the sins condemned in this court, the judge then addresses you, the audience, as a perfect and righteous judge. I must issue a perfect judgment against the guilt established before us today. Justice must prevail. So today, a verdict of guilt is established. Perfect justice is on display today. However, today also, perfect mercy. Will be on display as well. Justice will be discharged against the defender, as he has accepted the record of sin which has been established against the defendant. His record of sin will be assumed by the defender. He will be treated in accordance with this record of sin and debt. Justice will be upheld as the punishment deserved by the defender is put on. The defendant is put on the defender. The judge then turns to you. And he discharges you are found guilty before this court today. And in that guilt, you are deserving of all condemnation and wrath for eternity. However, today, you will receive mercy. A mercy you have no claim to. A mercy you do not deserve. Your punishment will be taken by your advocate and he will receive, and you will receive mercy. The judge lowers the gavel and declares the guilt and punishment of Chuck. The guilt and punishment of Lisa. The guilt and punishment of Anthony, of Nalani, of Vera. The guilt and punishment is imputed to the defender." He will receive the justice that you deserve. He will pay your debt today and settle your account with this court. Your crimes will be put on him and he will be treated like a criminal you are. He and I love you. We have planned for this day and long for your acquittal. My son, the defendant, will take upon himself your curse and sin so you can be forgiven and acquitted. Take him into custody and prepare for his death. The courtroom is shocked. You're overwhelmed. You can't even imagine what is happening. I don't deserve this love, this mercy, the judge's own son for me. As you are in awe of what is transpiring, the son is taken to your cross. And the nails that were reserved For your hands and your feet are driven into His as He is nailed to the beams of the cross. And as the beam is stood up and hoisted, He hangs upon your fitting punishment. And upon Him the judge discharges the wrath which you deserve. A wrath which an eternity in hell would never have depleted. A wrath consumed by the innocent, spotless lamb, as your sacrifice, a sacrifice for giving your sin and reconciling you to God. As the son's death is complete, the judge lowers the gavel and declares, This sacrifice, this sacrifice of my son has been offered and accepted. Today, justice has been satisfied. Doug, based on the payment of your defender, your guilt is removed. And you are acquitted today. This court declares you not guilty. Your record is that of the defender. A record of perfect righteousness. All your past, present, and future transgressions have been paid for. Your standing before the court is one of righteousness. (coughs) You are justice. You are justified. When we read this term, this is what this means. You are justified. A new life. A criminal set free. Because your crime was put on Christ and he bore it for you. You have been justified. It cannot be an empty concept in our Bible. It's your story. It's our very hope. You have been justified by the king himself and the love of his son. The judge then turns to the accuser and declares, this one has been removed from your custody and brought into the king's family as an adopted son. He is no longer in your charge and your grip on him has been broken. He is no longer yours, but mine. What you saw as a certain victory has been turned into defeat. The heel of the woman has been bruised, but the head of the serpent has been crushed today. And he looks at you and says, you are free to go. An acquitted person, released from certain death, a sentence of death has been removed and as the trial comes to an end and you leave in disbelief while you are the same person that came in the courtroom several hours ago you are a radically different person now you have been transformed everything about your life is different sure you have struggles and you have difficulties. But as those trials and those difficulties and those circumstances come up, you can go back into the courtroom and you can sit at the table again and you can consider again the events of the day and what your justification truly means. And that, my friends, is how we do not grow weary and faint-hearted. It's not by knowing the definition of justification. It's by knowing the story and what has actually truly happened to you when you put your faith in Christ and this is credited to you. When we say we believe in Jesus, well, what is it we believe? This. This is what we believe. This is what we cling to. We who believe in Christ have been justified. And you begin to see the world differently. You experience the same life, but you're looking through eyes that have been impacted. You're looking through eyes of an an acquitted criminal, one that should have spent their life in prison or the death penalty, but has been freed. Every day matters now. Every day is... It is something that you want to use and experience because of the new life you've been given. Consider Him. Consider the cost, the love, the forgiveness, the freedom that's been purchased for you. Things that seem insurmountable when you're on the street, they don't seem so important when you're considering them in the courtroom. There is less fear or anxiety when you're sitting with the advocate, before the judge, and you're hearing the declaration of your acquittal again. And things like one of the songs that we sing frequently, Before the Throne of God, resonate. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. Well, this is wonderful news if you are trusting in Christ. But if you're here and you have not trusted in Christ, know for certain that your day of reckoning will come. And you will be brought into the courtroom on your own. And when you sit at at your table, there will not be an advocate there with you. You will have to advocate on your own, for your own defense. And you will have nothing to say as the law is read. And you will surely be found guilty and surely receive the just condemnation for your sin. This is why we plead with you to trust in Christ. And what is it we ask you to trust? Oh, that He is our advocate. And He didn't just plead on our behalf, but He gave Himself as our defense. And in that, we have been justified. Father. May you help us to not merely know intellectually the concepts that you have given us, but may we truly consider you. May we mull them over and dig deeply into them. May we experience them so that we can grow in our understanding of your love for us. How wide and how deep, how high, how vast the love of Christ for us. And in that, may you transform us moment by moment as we live considering these truths. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.